listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. My guest is an Australian writer, director, indie filmmaker. He's made two feature films and hails from Western Australia's largest city, Perth, and loves to shoot and make films there. Ben Lucas, welcome to Shoot It Now. Uh, Thank you for having me. Hey, great to have you in. And you're on the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia at the moment. And especially for our US and Canadian listeners, the Gold Coast is a place that you've got to visit when international travel eventually opens up, but only after first visiting New Zealand, because the scenery and (laughs) hospitality in New Zealand is second to none. But the Gold Coast, I love. It's got a subtropical-like climate, fantastic beaches. It's clean, it's modern, it's vibrant with lots to do and see. And I used to live on the Gold Coast and have a really soft spot for it with Brisbane's 2.5 million population just down the road. So, Ben, what are you working on in the Gold Coast? Uh, That's the first question. And how much of a favourite is the Gold Coast for you? Well, first of all, I can't speak to comparing the hospitality between here and New Zealand because I've actually never been to New Zealand. So that's that's something I need to tick off my list eventually, and then I'll be able to discuss that with you. But uh, what am I doing on the, on the Gold Coast? Yeah, I just I just wrapped a show for, for Amazon, for ABC Disney, and I'm about to do another show, which is slightly smaller scale, for Acorn TV. It is just the spot to be at the moment in Australia. COVID is actually on our side here. Therefore, you know, people like myself who are here working or, you know, the crew who live here, they're in the green zone, you know, and therefore highly desirable, uh, especially for international productions. The legacy of filmmaking in this city is, is incredible. I mean, the studios have been there since the 90s. And, and if you look at the kind of trophy wall in one of the sound stages, you can see, you know, Queen of the Damned and, and Beast Hunter and like all these amazing shows and movies that like shooting back in the 90s. But that's what the crew cut their teeth on. And so you fast forward 20 years and they're doing Thor and other much more major, much more mainstream productions. So very experienced, great equipment. It's a great place to be working. And how long have you been in the Gold Coast at the moment in terms of time for these productions that you've been working on? Uh, I got here in April, I think it was. So I don't know if that's six months yet. I've sort of lost track of time Mm. as a concept. (laughs) Um, I have to say my experience of the Gold Coast is it's a bit of a glass tunnel. I mean, it's either the hotel, a car or a set. So everything else I've just sort of looked at as I drive past it on the way to location or the way to a set. It's a tourist city. Fundamentally, it's all about the beaches, a lot of surfing, a lot of tattoo shops. Some quite good food options, which is always something I look for. I can't really say that I've experienced it culturally. I've only looked at it from the balcony of my hotel. Ben, I want to talk about your second feature film, the sci-fi thriller Other Life, which I didn't realise was a film that was circulating in Hollywood trying to get made with a bigger budget, similar in scale to Christopher Nolan's Inception. So explain how a film like this lands in Australia and you get the chance to evaluate it and then having to scale it back with an indie budget to create the chance for it to be made in the first instance. Yeah, so I'm actually one of the last people in on that film. It it had a life that went back, I think, 
think about 15 years before I even was aware of it. You'd have to talk to the writer who, who wrote the novel, Solitaire, Kelly Eskridge, her name is. And then she was asked to adapt her own novel to a screenplay and she got picked up by a studio and that sort of did the rounds for a few years. And they brought in another writer, a superstar writer who was later pushed off it. So I won't name who that was. So it did that circuit, that Hollywood development circuit for a long time. And then it kept on getting pipped at the post by similar things. Inception was actually one of them. They came close to doing the film. And then when Inception came out, they thought, well, maybe it's a bit too similar or or, or something like that. Arguably, you'd say that that actually opened the market up to those sorts of films. But, you know, whatever. Studios make decisions. And then so it went into turnaround. And to put it in Kelly's own words, she said it felt like she was on the Hollywood party bus. And then at a certain point, they just kicked her to the curb and drove off without her. (laughs) That's the way Mm -hmm. she puts it. This script got scooped up by an Aussie producer, uh, Jamie Hilton, who's got a company here called Sea Pictures. He's produced a lot of films on every level, you know, some big, some small. And he came to me as a fan of my first film, Wasted on the Young, and just said, look, I've got collection of scripts here. You know, I think you'd be well suited to have a read, see if anything sticks. There were a few projects that stuck, but Other Life stood out as something that would look, I love science fiction. I wanted to move in that direction anyway. And so I thought, yeah, maybe this is an opportunity to just kind of flex that muscle a little bit. And I guess part two to that is the very honest question, can we make it in Australia and can we make it for a reduced budget? And my first answer to that question was no, I don't think we could. So we sat on it for a few months, let it incubate. And then the idea struck that maybe we took the primer approach, you know, where the initial script was set in big corporate offices in far-flung future cities. And I said, what if it was the garage version of that, where they're just developing this technology for the first time? And it's all brand new. We kind of just reduce the scale and the number of characters and the set pieces down to a much more intensely sort of character-focused story. And then that that worked. And so obviously that's what, you know, it's the film we made in the end. I took a pass at the script with, you know, with the blessings of the writer who was actually a really close collaborator. She came over. She came over to Perth while we were shooting. And she said it was nice because just to extend that party bus metaphor, she was like, it felt like, you know, and then another car turned up and picked me up <laughs> and, <laughs> and continued the drive. And, and maybe the car wasn't the Hollywood party bus. You know, maybe it was like a busted up combi on the way to a festival, but at least she was going somewhere. <laughs> so you were very lucky with the writer who was so open because some writers, they get delusional because it's being put or elevated in that same company of Inception. And that's a mindset which might be very hard to break away from when an indie filmmaker down in Australia says, yeah, we can make this, but it's nothing like a budget of Inception. Yeah, and by the way, you won't be paid even a fraction (laughs) of that value either. Um, She is just a wise and creative person who was not chasing that dollar or that uh, fame or infamy or anything like that. She was honestly just in it for the art. She likes her own work. She likes her own novel. She was just excited that somebody else had the same enthusiasm for it. And look, the movie and the book are nowhere near each other. <laughs> They're very, very different things. But in spirit, we embraced a lot of the same things she wanted to communicate in her initial work. So I, I think it's sort of like a, a spiritual successor rather than an adaptation. But she's happy. And look, I am a director who wants to protect the writer. I've I've done that with all the TV shows I've done as well. I I just feel like that's part of our job is quite often they'll get studio notes and they'll get notes from, from the finance side of things and just stuff that really dilutes and strips back 
the essence of what they were trying to say in the first place. And, and, and especially in Australia, quite often TV writers, they get kicked around and they, they sort of get fatigued and eventually they just bow down and say, okay, fine, like I'll change it, I'll take that character out, I'll, I'll reduce this set piece or whatever it is. And from a director's point of view, I'm always thinking like, how can I protect them? <laughs> how can I hmm. preserve what they were trying to do in the first place? And what's happened to the rights of the novel? Because the whole concept of Other Life does lend itself to a streaming platform series. Has there been any inquiry around that idea of turning the film into a series? Look, we did actually develop an outline for a series and we had quite an interesting take on it where a sort of semi, uh, you know, these hybrid shows where you do have a series arc, but you also just have a procedural drop in, drop out weekly, if you will, storyline. We had an idea for that where each episode would sort of investigate one application of the technology, whether it's prisons or whether it's education or, you know, psychedelics, whatever it is we want to get into, that becomes the engine for that ep. But then also on top of it, you have uh, like a series long character arc for the main characters and for the company that's making the, the other life drug. And yeah, so we kicked that idea around and I don't have a good answer for why it never got made. I think, I think there was just a lot of fatigue, uh, you know, independent filmmaking takes it out of you. I was full time on that thing for two years. It's a big chunk of your life especially when there's not a lot of money involved. And so at a certain point, you just feel like you want to move on and, and do something else. I think the rights still reside with the producer. So it's not dead forever. In the earlier part of your career, you were a games developer. Mm -hmm. How useful was that background and technology to bring into the film industry? Because I'm sure that you're not the only filmmaker that has come through that career route. And perhaps when you first started in the film industry, you couldn't have foreseen any advantage in that background. But perhaps as time has now gone on, you have been able to draw from it. I think one of the benefits of working on games is that you think very broadly about character and world development and less about plot structure. And I know for a fact that as a writer, my weakness is plot structure. I'm always sort of having to default to the formula just to help me get through the structure of a script. I'll write scenes and, and, and sort of develop alternative versions of scenes and, and like forever just sort of come up with what ifs. What if the story turned this direction instead of that? And what would that mean? And where would that go? And that's sort of, that's the game developer brain trying to build a sandbox of, of possibility for those characters. And that has been extremely useful because quite often people who are groomed from the other direction sort of have blinkers on a little bit. It's just all about the destination and not about the journey when it comes to story development. Both have strengths, both have weaknesses. I, I now know what my weakness is, <laughs> but I've also learned how to embrace what the strength is, which is, yeah, this sort of open-ended thinking about what you can do with a script. And sci-fi filmmaking and gaming development, are there any threads of the two coalescing together? In other words, do they have any mutual synergy going on? Well, I mean, I suppose just much more broadly, games tend to just have more room to move creatively. You can be a lot more conceptual, whether it's fantasy or science fiction or, or whatever. I think filmmaking is sort of confined to the contemporary a little bit more for realistic budgetary reasons quite often. That's just a tradition of film and TV is we, we tell stories about ourselves here and now generally. It takes a different kind of creative engine <laughs> and also, frankly, budget to be able to do like really big, broad, high concept things. 
And as an indie filmmaker, I think casting is much more of a puzzle to succeed in. There are limitations to your available pool of actors, and that's just a default position that indie filmmakers live with day in, day out, which often means taking chances with actors. I love working with actors who have a real point to prove when getting that lucky break of being cast. Bigger budgets, to a large extent, expand the talent depth of actors, which makes the decision making much more easier. So for a film like Other Life, how did you go about casting that? And what's your process and rationale during the selection process, given that it is a, an indie casting position that you're coming from? There's a real standoff when it comes to casting, and it, it is both the boon and the death of my career is this exact um, pressure point, which is you want to work with the highest profile actors possible because it'll lift your profile, and it'll also open up the audience of the film. That's great. But those actors generally aren't going to take a chance on someone who hasn't already proven themselves in that area. So it's like, uh, what's that classic scene from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure where they're like, we need to learn how to play, but we need to get Eddie Van Halen in our videos. Like you just have to, but <laughs> yeah. to get Eddie Van Halen, we have to learn how to play first. It's just that back and forth constantly. And there are a dozen films I haven't made because we came so close to locking in cast and then availability or budget or even just desire to do it kind of waned. And that's the way it goes. I mean, I, my rule is kind of one in 20. I feel like that's reasonable. Of all the horses you put in the race, probably 19 of them are going to fall to the wayside for reasons that aren't even really in your control. My favorite rejection of all time, I'll never forget this. We had a film, you know, fully locked in, financed, cast, ready to go. And the studio, the distribution uh, arm of things said, we've decided not to make it in the end because there's nothing else like it. <laughs> it was too original for them. There was no point them taking a risk on that particular project. And that's not about me or anything that we did as creatives. It's just about the engine, you know, the machine that work. Just one of those classic tensions that we're always negotiating. I, I love working with new actors because they've got so much to prove and you can get really creative, I think. And I, I was lucky enough on my first film that we just scooped up all these young people out of drama school and they're all amazing. And we had such a good time doing quite weird ways of rehearsing and, and preparing. And I've never been able to re repeat that sort of, that was, that was the sweet spot in terms of just being purely creative in the process. And your first film, Wasted on the Young, that you were just talking about, it had that ensemble cast, mm. which makes it even more challenging to, to cast because you don't want anybody to look the same. They've all got to have their own different look, their own different idiosyncrasies. That becomes a real challenge when that uh, casting pool is so small and you just have so fewer options to select from. I'm really grateful that it was that was my first film. There were some other films circulating that could have been a lot different in their conception. And this this ensemble was the perfect way to learn how important casting is. I had a great experience working with Greg Apps, who was the casting director on that, very experienced. You could say is loosely responsible for putting Eric Banner in Chopper, for putting Russell Crowe in Romper Stomper and like, you know, all these other really iconic roles that he was at the center of. And, you know, directors often get credit or even actors get credit <laughs> for, for those roles. But ultimately, the casting director had to present that idea in the first place. And I, 
I learned just how critical that part of it was. He read the script, he understood the story, he had ideas for the different types of film this could be based purely on this mix of people we were going to put in it. It was great. It was like a jigsaw puzzle. And, and in the end, we actually had three complete casts and we could look, we pin them all up on the wall and we could say, that's got a more American flavor, that's got a more European flavor, that's got, you know, whatever. And that was, yeah, quite interesting. And a lot of the, the people we cast, we also missed, mixed and matched. We sort of thought, what if we put him in that role and her in that one and, and just see what that does to it. It's very rewarding. It's kind of like being a detective. You've got your identity kit of who you think the suspect looks like, and then <laughs> you just bring people in until you find your person. You know, like there was a little known actor who was right at the front called Liam Hemsworth, um, <laughs> who really wanted the role of the, of the lead bully. And it was down to him, between him and um, Alex Russell, who got the role. We just spent weeks going, who is it? Who is it? They're both great. And it came down to something Greg Apps said to me. He said, the difference between these two is if you cast Alex Russell, you get someone who had to work for it. Whereas if you cast Liam, you get someone who kind of had it handed to him a little bit. And that's not anything about these actors as individuals. It's just about the character and the energy they bring to the screen in that story. So having made two features, shorts, television series behind you, for indie filmmakers working, trying to piece together their first feature, how hard is it right now, do you think, to pop your head up and be noticed in a sea of content because there's just so much content around? Yeah, I sort of reject this notion that films are harder to make now than they ever have been before. I hear that used quite a lot. It's always been hard. The landscape is constantly shifting. So if, if someone is lamenting that oh, it's harder now than it ever was, possibly they just haven't stayed in touch with, you know, how the, the industry, especially in COVID, like things have really changed uh, where our focus is. There's no like easy way to make a film. It's always going to be really tricky. And I, I think one of the interesting things about the period we're in right now is because it's so noisy, because there is so much content, it means two things. One, there's a lot of opportunity and there's just literally thousands of platforms crying out for content. So it's up to us to create that content. Is it harder to get noticed? I mean, possibly, possibly. But then one of the benefits of this sea of noise, as you rightly say, is that quality sticks out even more. You feel it when like, one of the thousands of platforms, Netflix, puts out you know, three or four films and a couple of TV series every single week. But we only talk about one or two. We only talk about the ones that, that sort of resonate. And then you know, outside of the, the one or two that we've got time to watch and engage with, the ones that kind of get popular, if you will, I think that's when it gets interesting is, in, is where people sort of go, oh, this is, this is my favorite show. You haven't heard of it. It's on a little known platform <laughs> somewhere else. And then that's, that's where I feel like there's some just really interesting stuff going on. I suppose if there's any advice in that, it's just to sort of pivot your thinking to see what is a very daunting landscape, a very crowded landscape. See it as an opportunity. And it's always bloody hard. It's grueling. It's time consuming to make a mm -hmm. film. You touch on quality. It's about quality, quality, quality. That is the single most important thing to keep in mind. What doesn't cost any money is vision and a unique point of view. You could have gone to the greatest film school in the universe and know every technical trick and aspect of filmmaking, but without a clear vision to story and your own unique way of telling it with quality, 
chances of making a feature without it decreases a hundredfold. That unique point of view is the critical part, I think, because if there's one thing that is harder than ever, it's second guessing the market. 20 or 30 years ago, when you've got you know, five TV channels <laughs> and, you know, there's that one movie that everyone wants to see coming out once a week. Then you have a little bit more control over potentially what people want and you can sort of shoot for something. But now when you consider just the sheer volume of content being produced, it means there is a market for absolutely everything and everyone. That's amazing. But it means that you can't pretend to be anything except what you are. You know, you can't make a movie that's a bit like a Marvel movie. Only they can do that. You can only be true to yourself. Yeah, as you say, have that unique point of view. And even if it feels risky, perhaps especially if it feels risky, um, just go for it. That's actually something that I've been learning more and more about myself that, you know, I, the, the mid part of my career so far was definitely spent trying to figure out how I fit and what I can do to kind of meet the market, if you will, and sort of feeling like I could potentially do anything. So I need to prove to everyone that I can do everything, <laughs> which obviously is pointless. Actually, I have to go the other way. And it's been very rewarding. I've found much greater success in just sort of sticking to my guns and, you know, simple things like you go for a meeting, have an opinion. And if they don't like it, great. The best thing you can get is a clean no. But if they do like it, then good. You're going for it, you know. So, yeah, just be true to your tastes. Develop those tastes for sure. Grow as an artist, but also just be really singular about the sort of thing you want to do because the market's so big, but, you know, the landscape's so broad that there's got to be someone out there somewhere that is waiting for you. And talking of taste, Dan Frayne, your cinematographer who has shot your mm. two features, he's a great talent with a good eye for composition. But more importantly, mm -hmm. you both create this style of moving pictures together with an aesthetic that's very recognisable, and it's clear that you both enjoy working and sharing the experience of filmmaking together. Yeah, I have a great time with Dan. When I did my first film, when I did Wasted on the Young, we had been friends for a couple of years at that point. We'd met, I think I was crewing on a short film that he was shooting, and we just sort of bonded over, actually at the time, just complaining <laughs> about um, how, how rotten the production was that we'd met on. But then through that, we forged, you know, this friendship that was based on, I think, a pretty holistic view of our role in the industry and what we liked about films and that sort of thing. But then when I was finally got my first film up, there was a huge push from the investment side of things to make sure that this first time indie filmmaker was partnered with the most experienced AD production designer designer, cinematographer possible. They just wanted me to, to hook up with all the old guard, you know, to help shepherd me through, basically. That's just fear speaking, and, and I understand it for sure. So actually, Dan was helping me. I said, I went to Dan, and I said, hey, do you know any cinematographers I should be talking to? He spent months kind of matchmaking me with different people, and I met some great cinematographers, but none of them felt right. And then after, I think it was like six months of that, he, I just went, hang on a second, do you reckon you could shoot it? And he went, Hell yeah, I could shoot it. But I just knew that it was not going to be an easy sell. So I went into Screen West and I made this very impassioned plea in the boardroom where I just said, look, it, he hasn't got the resume, but neither do I. What we have is an is a, is a easy communication and a common kind of aesthetic. And combined, that means that we're going to do something good together. You just have to trust that. And thankfully, it paid off. So you write as well as direct. 
What is your approach to writing? For instance, what type of environment do you like to write in? As in, is it sitting on a Gold Coast beach or sitting at home <laughs> in a quiet room? And the, the length of time and what time you give yourself, the preferred hours of the day to write in and an average page count per day. Okay, so the worst thing I ever did was write quite a good script in a weekend. It was a really good first draft. It got everybody excited and I sold it. This is 15 years ago and I was super excited about how quick I was and it gave me a false sense of, <laughs> of confidence because then I thought that's how long it takes to write a script and everything I've done since then has taken six months to a year to five years. <laughs> and I've never, I've been chasing that dragon ever since. I've never managed to recapture whatever inspiration hit me that weekend. But that's a roundabout way of saying there's no formula to this thing. <laughs> you know, like sometimes it pours out of you and sometimes it has to be beaten out of you. Unfortunately, 99% of the time I have to be dragged kicking and screaming through the process. I'm not someone that you should listen to for writing advice. I've done a lot of it. I've done a lot of ghostwriting. I've done a lot of development. And obviously, like most writers have written a lot of things that, you know, are just sitting under option or, or not going anywhere. And every single one of them has been excruciating. <laughs> um, I think I don't consider myself a writer first and foremost. It, it was always, you know, it was in my background as a game designer. That's where I started. I'm okay enough at it that you know, at least for the first few years of, of the career, I was I was sought out for it. And that was a good thing. But I've, I've really tried to distance myself from it because I am a director first. And I realized that that's not my sharpest tool set, <laughs> especially given how agonizing the process can be. There are people who, you know, talk about, I've got friends, in fact, who they get up first thing in the morning and they're really productive before they send the kids to school or whatever it is. And they, you know, bang out those four pages a day, no matter what, and they'll come back and they'll edit in the evening and they have that system in place. And I'm just not that professional about it. I'll, I'll pick up the laptop when I'm feeling it and I'll avoid it for days on end if I'm not. So don't do it my way. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> there is one advice and that is deadlines, no matter what. It is not an open-ended process as much as it is. Just set a date and meet it. And even if that means you're cramming at the last minute, like I'm sure we all did at school, it's just so critical that you have an ax hanging over your, you know, your deliverable. Even if you're writing for yourself, make one up, sign a contract with yourself and just have a deadline. It's probably the most important thing. Good advice. Writing carries the discipline and responsibility to the writer. And I think a lot of writers forget that. So much depends internally of what is going on in the mindset of the writer. Where is their head at? I interviewed a filmmaker, Jennifer Zhang, a writer-director a few weeks back who made an iPhone shot featured film by herself in her apartment wow. building. And she wrote a 75-page script in four days, which, as we know, is lightning <laughs> fast. But like she said, she was in lockdown, and what else was she going to do? But her mindset and discipline was intact to be able to achieve that task. And that's what you have to, you know, do. All the discipline and the structure just has to be there from the beginning. Absolutely. My wife and I, we moved to England a, a few years ago when COVID hit for reasons that I won't go into. Like I, I came back to Perth and so did a sort of six month lockdown period there in, in isolation um, while she was there and, and I was in Australia. 
And, you know, that was sad and, and challenging in its own way. But at the time, I remember we both thought, well, what an opportunity. If there's nothing shooting and you just got all this time to yourself, be prolific, right? And I was like, yes. But as soon as I put that pressure on myself, the muse, she left me. <laughs> you know, like there was just no inspiration uh, in the walls of that house. I would look at the laptop every day, but nothing would um, transmit from my fingers into it. <laughs> I just couldn't do it. There was something in the air. And even though conditions were right, you're sort of not in control of when that inspiration strikes, you know. Frustratingly, as soon as I got busy this year and I'm shooting this show for Amazon, then that's when all the ideas started hitting. And I think there's probably some lesson in there about, you know, keeping your mind active and, <laughs> and, and, and keeping the inspiration flowing. And cinema was changing before COVID turned up. A theatrical mm -hmm. release was always a small proportion of films made. And now that small percentage has become even smaller, especially for indie films. The reality in 2021 is that most films will be seen on devices from streaming platforms, which, like it or not, does have the most eyeballs for a new film's release. How do you view the current trend? Because like me and every other filmmaker, you are first and foremost drawn to watching your film in the cinema with an audience. Yeah, I'm trying not to be a curmudgeon about it. I'm trying to be really open and optimistic about the future and, and sort of roll with the times. That doesn't mean there isn't a big part of me that feels like cinema is pure and it's dying. <laughs> and I, and I you know, want to resist that as much as I can. I mean, five years ago when we were grading Other Life, we had already sold the film to Netflix as we were finishing it. We were grading in a proper grading theatre, as you should, and the colorist made the point to me is like well no one's going to see it like this shouldn't we be grading on a on a monitor and he was right but it's just too heartbreaking i was like i don't know <laughs> let's just keep on imagining that it's going to be a cinematic theatrical release it just for our own sakes if nothing else and then you know we did a very limited festival run we showed it at sydney and melbourne and a couple others i did introduce the film at a couple of those festivals and i made sure to make the point to the audience that these are unique experiences like this is what the film was made for, but that subset of a few hundred people are the, literally the only ones who'll ever see it like that. Everyone else will see it either on their home TV or, as you say, even worse, on an iPad or on a phone or something. And then, you know, if I, if I really want to be bitter and twisted about the way things are going, uh, last year I was offered a project that in the end I, I couldn't do where they wanted to shoot at Portrait. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, yeah, exactly. Whoa. They wanted to shoot at 16.9, but uh, Portrait. Again, I tried to be into it. I was like, okay, yeah, maybe maybe this is the future and maybe this is, you know, something that we should lean into instead of resisting. But um, it's, not, it's not a nice feeling. <laughs> it's kind of like oh. a little stab every time I think about it. What was their rationale for wanting to do it? I mean, I get the whole iPhone factor, but you turn your iPhone to landscape and you've got a bigger screen. So what was the rationale for them wanting to do it in portrait? Well, I mean, the rationale was that that's how things are watched and that people don't turn their phone sideways, which, again, unfortunately, they're kind of right about that. We're in this weird in-between phase, aren't we? If I pick up my phone right now and I look at the screen, you know, if someone sends me a clip for a YouTube video or something, chances are I'm just going to see it at the top third of the screen. I am a traditionalist. I am a kind of a purist on, on one level. Like I said, I'm trying not to be too resistant to the reality of things. Certainly when you're shooting and grading, you do have to think about the kind of screen people are watching it on. And yeah, 
<laughs> it's just one of those things you have to factor in. The TV show I'm about to start tomorrow, actually, there was some discussion. It's an older cast, and so naturally there is a discussion around exactly how close we should be shooting at 6K. Like, literally, you know, you, you want to be... And, of course, it's a good note. You want to be flattering to yes. your cast. But if you shoot too wide, uh, are the people who are watching it on their laptop going to miss that kind of like juicy emotional detail that you only get from certain close-ups. That's a tension in how we will compose and shoot the images for the show. It seems crazy, doesn't it? I mean, let's face facts. Mm. It seems crazy that you actually have to think about the wide because it's so small on a phone that somebody's watching <laughs> versus yeah. watching it in a cinema where everything just beautifully plays out as it should. Yeah. Yeah, and look, that, that is, that is I mean, that's a classic TV thing. The TV loves a close-up because the screens are smaller. Um, you can be a little bit more, you can be wider in, with cinema because, you know, you've got that much more real estate for the eyeballs. Certainly the fact that we're shooting everything at 6K now is interesting, but there's also an opportunity in that, the ability to reframe. I'm a reframer. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll recompose every shot I can uh, in the edit if I've got time. And that's just a nice little ace to have up your sleeve. If you don't get exactly the close-up you wanted when you're shooting at that resolution, you could losslessly crop you know, 200% if you had to. We've spoken to a few different filmmakers about knowing the numbers of who is watching your film on Netflix. Pretty frustrating. You know, with a distribution run theatrically, at least you know the numbers, but you're just flying blind with no number information on your film. Yes, it's, it's interesting that that is privileged information. I know a couple of producers who have been given insights on their films that they've sold to Netflix. So it, it does happen, not very often, and it's certainly not policy. One of the things we learned from our first feature was that piracy actually gave us better metric than anything else. <laughs> so um, we were like heavily downloaded in Russia and Brazil and Portugal. So we knew that we were striking a market there. Other Life was huge in Argentina, weirdly enough. In a strange way, like that, that metric was more useful to us than almost any other. But then, yeah, when you just do a worldwide deal with Netflix, there's almost no point pirating the film. I mean, that, that idea is kind of gone if you can stream it. Well, that's really interesting about the, the pirated side of your films because I picked up on an interesting comment, and I'll read the comment. It was an opinion piece, and it said this, there have been bogus other life trailers bobbing about on YouTube, garnering hundreds of thousands of views. For mm. the most part, these so-called trailers were so badly edited, narratively random, and intended only to pull hits and lure people to torrented versions of various pirated films. And this person went on to say, seriously, I have never seen a worse movie trailer in my life carrying the title official other life Netflix trailer. The majority of comments were left by well-intentioned viewers who thought they were seeing a real trailer. So that was the comment that was made by somebody. So if you spin that around, it's, it's that old saying, 
any publicity is good publicity. Is, is Am I reading that the right way with what you're saying with Russia and the pirate yeah. version? Yeah, I don't want to be misconstrued as endorsing the piracy. Um, <laughs> my, the, the point to make is that it was actually quite useful information for us to track, you know, knowing full well that we couldn't stop it necessarily. Although, you know, I, I also know that with Other Life, one of the producers sort of made it their full-time job just taking down, like putting up warnings and taking down bogus trailers and download links and that sort of stuff. So it's not that it's not labor-intensive and it's not that we aren't sort of actively trying to protect the film. If you embrace the information it gives you just in terms of the raw data, how many people and from where and what demographic, how old, that sort of thing, like you actually can sort of form a picture of where the film is working. And to be clear, like on my first film, that mattered. But on the second film, it sort of didn't. When we sold it worldwide, so we just sort of dusted our hands of it. No information that we gathered would help us market or sell it any better because it was just on Netflix. So it was a really weird feeling. And I remember the day that we were done, it was so unceremonial, if that's a word. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, We kind of just pressed the export button and went home. And that was it. That was the last we ever did. You know, there was no fanfare or anything. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. On one part, it's it's sort of liberating. On the other hand, it, it's it's a little bit disappointing because there is something nice about, obviously, your big premiere and the red carpet and all that kind of stuff. Like, I'm not one of those people who thinks that's what we're doing it for. But at the same time, it's just nice to have a party. <laughs> you of <know>? course. <laughs> And Ben, what is next for you? You mentioned that you're filming tomorrow. What other feature films that are circling in your orbit, in your mind at the moment? Anything that you can reveal? Well, as I was lamenting earlier, I was not very productive during the COVID year. I really tried. I wanted to to write and write and write and pop out the other end of this thing, you know, with scripts ready to go. I wasn't very good at that job. I'm trying to go easy on myself. I think one of the worst things you can do for your creativity is put pressure on yourself for failure. Just accept that sometimes it's there, sometimes it isn't. So on the back of that, I do have like three feature projects that I'm very passionate about that are sort of close to ready to share as a script, but are still very much in the works. And, you know, good problem to have. I'm, I'm pretty busy at the moment and I'm, I'm loving the work that I'm doing on the TV side of things. So I, I really don't have a timeline on that stuff. I don't you know, when when I'm going to get another opportunity to sit and, and develop. But yeah, always with an eye to film, of course. I love features and directors don't get to make many, if any. The fact that I've done two is anomalous. I think it's like a 90% drop-off rate for directors after their first film. You know, it's pretty horrible numbers. I'm already in a pretty privileged position and, and I guess that's a long way of saying I'm not in a hurry. I don't feel like I need to churn out films. Uh, you know, like if I get to do it again and hopefully I will, I just want to make sure that it's the right conditions, it's the right project, it's done the right way, you know, to really give it that TLC. Well, Ben Lucas, thank you for sharing some of your filmmaking thoughts and insights about the film industry and also for making me jealous and envious of you being in the Gold Coast right now. And <laughs> and thanks most importantly for coming on to Shoot It Now. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.